0: Welcome to Dawn's Own, the Deeper Sense podcast. I'm Shahar Peled, your host and guide to the context of everything and the fundamental questions of being, knowledge, and reality. This is uh, the first uh, talk in a series of uh, talks about uh, believing the real and uh, what does it mean to believe in the real actually our whole civilization believes in the real this is the essence of the scientific view of reality is to believe in the real to look at what's happening and try to make sense of it but uh, even in science there is no uh, way to avoid theory The scientists look at the real, at the empirical reality, and then uh, they make up uh, all kinds of theories which they test against reality. And the theoretical part of science is uh, very akin, very similar to um, all kinds of theories, even religious ones, even metaphysical ones, um, theological ones. In fact, the theoretical level, science outwardly is indistinguishable from dogma. Indeed, we find that there is dogma in science. After a certain worldview has been accepted, after a certain paradigm has been accepted widely by the scientific community, it is very hard to go against it and to say, no, no, this is not right. In fact, Uh, If anything, the dogmas of science uh, bear the imprint of truth and are even stronger uh, than the dogmas of religion. Because uh, you don't have to go against reality, it is reality that supports the dogma. And this is the main point here, because when science uh, arrives at a certain paradigm, a certain dogma, then it is supported by evidence, by reality. On the other hand, religion or other metaphysical or idealistic platonic views, they have this uh, vision of reality which they um, uh, enforce onto reality. Actually, it seems very similar. and There have been thinkers that said, oh, no, no difference. But there is one essential difference, and that is really the essence of the idea of believing in the real. The difference is that you allow the real, you allow reality, to influence the way you view the world. This seems like uh, non secular, so what? what? So what? But actually, uh, this has been the major, the focal point of the turn uh, in uh, the uh, progress, in the uh, um, it, um, advancement of humanity over the last few hundred years, the turn to the real. Uh, it's, uh, it's a, uh, there's a, an anecdote about Galileo and the Pope. It's well known that uh, uh, the, um, the famous story of Galileo and the Pope is like, um, it's like a parable of uh, the rise of modernity. Uh, science versus dogma. Uh, Galileo said uh, the earth revolves around the sun. The Pope says no. Scripture says that the sun um, rises, the sun sets. So uh, they have an argument, and then uh, Galileo is forced to recant, And but under his uh, mustache he whispers, yet it moves, and so on. This is the classic... Uh, uh, paradigm of, uh, of the rise of science against dogma. But actually, uh, historians have now shown that what uh, really happened there was that everybody knew about this idea of Copernicus. Copernicus uh, preceded Galileo by 100 years. So what was the big deal? And, and nobody, nobody was forcing uh, Copernicus or calling it heresy. Because up till Galileo's time, it was just a nice theory. It was something uh, to toy with, like logic. Nobody was saying that this is how, re- actually, uh, how reality is actually built, actually made. In fact, the innovation of Galileo was not that he uh, said what Copernicus said and changed our worldview from a geocentric view to a heliocentric view. No. Uh, Even more, today, uh, after Einstein, we say everything is relative. So what does it really matter if we look at things from the point of view of the Earth or the point of view of the sun? So why was this so critical? Why did this uh, uh, become uh, the very essence of the idea of science versus faith or versus religion? Because what happened there was Galileo insisted that reality is built like that. He insisted that this is not just a nice theory that makes calculations uh, more efficient, although also there is uh, some historians that say there was no greater efficiency. Only Kepler made it more efficient. But before that, in order to balance uh, the actual movement of the stars with the Copernican view of things, you had to add all kinds of um, subcalculations. It was very complex. Uh, not, not a great uh, improvement over uh, Pto- Ptolemaeus, uh, the previous uh, cosmology. So what was it? What was it there? It turns out that the essence of uh, the uh, scientific revolution Uh, as encapsulated in this uh, idea, in this parable, is that Galileo said, look, this is the truth. Reality is built in such a way that the earth moves around the sun and I can prove it to you by showing you uh, things through my telescope. I can uh, prove it to you with my scientific calculations. And this is uh, the way the world moves, not the way written in Scripture. Now, what by what authority, uh, dear Galileo, are you standing here against uh, thousands of years of accepted dogma, accepted doctrine that says the uh, sun moves around the earth? <laughs> and even more so... Your eyes just look at the skies. Haven't you seen a sunset? Or haven't you seen a sunrise? So, what's the big deal, Galileo? You are now inventing some kind of newfangled theory, uh, taking uh, Copernicus's word uh, for it, which was just, Copernicus was just, you know, toying around with the mathematical calculations. And now you are saying that the heavens actually behave in this way. Contra to everything we know about the world. uh, Contra to common sense. Contra to tradition. Contra to everything. So this was indeed the essence of the scientific revolution. It's not just, is it around the sun or is it around the earth? It's not just the perspective of the heavenly bodies that are at stake here but the actual turning to reality, to ontology, to to what is, to what we encounter empirically as a criterion for truth, and as a criterion that will shape our theory of the world, even more so, because the, the the accepted position in all religions, especially uh, what's called revealed religions, those that are based on a divine revelation, is that we have a revelation that tells us what reality is. And then we take that revelation and we interpret reality through it. And reality has no say in this. Quite the contrary, sometimes reality behaves in this or that way, then we enforce our dogma on reality. We force reality to fit the picture rather than the picture to fit reality. But this also happens in science. So what's the difference here? The difference here, I think uh, Popper um, uh, stated it in the best way. He called it, uh, there's a title for his book, Conjectures and Refutations. Science is always conjectural. The theory needs reality to reinforce it, and if reality does not reinforce the theory, then the theory falls. So, in fact, it is a turn to the world. And that is why, um, and we will go into this at greater depth, the theological underpinnings of uh, this um, uh, idea, Uh, that is why science uh, became Uh, the opponent of religion, because religion seeks uh, the vision of reality outside reality, through divine revelation, through sages, through revealed uh, secret truth about the way reality behaves, while science keeps turning back to reality to engage its own theories. And its theories uh, are often refuted Now, this is not for want of trying by scientists to adhere to their theories. In fact, scientists can be very uh, adamant. They can be uh, quite fanatic about their theories uh, and that reality does behave according to what they have uh, discovered, what they have formulated. But the, the thing about science is that ultimately it is open to refutation because it turns to the real. And the real... Allows the consensus of many people. I can talk about dogma until I'm blue in the face, but if another person believes another dogma, then we are just, it's, it's just, we need the, uh, we need uh, the Westphalian, the peace of Westphalia to make peace between us something higher than us so that we can both hold each of our dogmas and live peacefully because we, we will never be able to agree since there is no external criterion, criterion for our truth. But with science, this is suddenly transformed into a completely different picture. Because if I and, say, someone holding a different faith, say, uh... Uh, someone who has uh, a buddhist faith, christian, muslim, say we are we are four here. Uh, uh, uh we each with his own faith. Uh and o- of course this is just you know uh just for the sake of argument because there is i believe no christians, muslims or jews or or buddhists. There are individ- individual faith uh that everyone uh, that each person uh, creates out of his uh, or her own experience of the divine, of, the, of uh, their culture, of what they have received, and from what they uh, gather. Because each person, ultimately, is faced with reality. And that reality includes also the cultural uh, inheritance or the religious uh, traditions that that person is born into. But take all of us each one with his own or her own faith, belief, worldview, and so on, and put us in a room, the things that we will be able to agree on are the real. There's a chair there. Okay, we can... four chairs. Each of us can sit in a chair. There's a table, lights, whatever. There is an empirical reality in which all of humanity finds itself. And the greatness of the new scientific vision is that it goes beyond the personal idiosyncrasy of each person's faith or belief. It allows us to agree on the real. So we believe in the real. In fact, these four persons, each uh, uh, holding a, a different, the diverse uh, faith, now meet together in a room and they agree. They agree on the scientific... Uh, part of uh, reality, and they share a a similar theory regarding the structure of reality. And this is the very essence of science, that it cuts across religions, creeds, uh, genders, races, uh, whatever, all the isms, all the the, uh, essentialisms, all the things that categorize human beings as belonging to this or that affiliation, are uh, shed aside when it comes to science or even academia more generally because everyone now is sharing in an endeavor that becomes common to all of humanity because it faces the real. It faces reality. And this is the essence of uh, of the, the revolution of science. It's not... Uh, the content, the actual content of science, as compared with religion, because uh, science today, from, uh, say, from uh, uh, an Einsteinian point of view, can say the same thing as, uh, as the Pope in, uh, in Galileo's days. We can also say that the, the sun revolves around the Earth, because uh, it's all relative. The sun, the sun, in fact, revolves around the galaxy with the Earth and the Moon, and and the galaxies themselves are revolving. So, it depends on your perspective, and we can make very, very um, very complex calculations to show this, and some people, uh, fundamentalists, uh, I have seen these kind of calculations that say, no, it's all, Scripture is still true. Forget Galileo. Yes, the Earth uh, revolves, uh, the Sun revolves around the Earth. But this is not the issue. The issue is That ultimately, we can uh, posit such a theory, but now it is subject to the uh, scrutiny of other scientists. And they can look uh, even at such a convoluted theory and compare it, say, to the, the, the Galilean heliocentric theory and say, look, Okay, I, it's true that we can calculate things from a geocentric point of view, but really, uh, what for? I, I mean, the calculation is so much simpler uh, after the after Kepler and uh, all the the rest have uh, done the, the work and uh, what we know now about the cosmos, that it's really, there's no sense in holding the geocentric point of view. Obviously, the heliocentric point of view is more economical, uh, more parsimonious, and more efficient uh, for our calculations and the way that we uh, calculate our orbits, the way we, we view things. So, science has adopted this view, the heliocentric view following Galileo, but the reason that science adopted it is that Galileo could point to reality as supporting his thesis, while the Pope was forced to rely on authority, on this is what I said and that's it. And again, science does breed dogma, and we will go into it in another uh, Uh, talk, how dogmas arise in science. And scientists do ask themselves, what don't I understand that I can't really understand, like, Born's theory or Einstein's relativity? Uh, There's something lacking in me because this is the authority. And it's true, that's the way we act. But ultimately, in this endeavor of science, there um, there is a place for the real to uh, serve as a criteri- criterion for our uh, theory. So, conjectures and refutations become the very essence of modernity. And this view that we as individuals, as societies, as human beings, are capable of actually addressing the uh, uh, the real, the things that appear before our eyes. And we are not... Um, contingent on received dogma, on revelation. But actually, as individuals, we can face reality, we can check, we can test, we can view things and see how they really fit our theories. This is the essence of the revolution of modernity. Because instead of turning to revelation and attempting to fit society to dogma, we are now uh, attempting to learn about society, about the human, about psychology, not just the world, not just the the material world, which is the very uh, basis of scientific endeavor, because it is so easy to look at reality, to agree on the real, to agree on on, uh, this is a chair before us. If we go back to our parable of four different faith meeting in one room. It's uh, more difficult to agree on how we as four people should behave uh, to each other. But this is also something that once a scientific revolution was set into motion, uh, became uh, part of what humanity now addresses. For example, we four can agree that uh, greeting each other um, politely, uh, like good morning, or how are you, uh, is something that can be cross-cultural and smooth as the interactions between uh, human beings. It also makes them into human beings, because if you say good morning to someone as another human being, you are recognizing him as a human being. And as I will discuss later, uh, all religions have the dictum, the golden uh, rule of love thy neighbor as thyself, but the question is, who is your neighbor and who is not your neighbor? And these distinctions have become very, very difficult uh, throughout uh, human history. But here, through the turn to the real, we can have social studies, we can have psychological studies in which we attempt to look at real people, real reactions, and see what works and what doesn't work. And there's many, many uh, experiments now in the, the annals of history, a lot of failed experiments that arose from the scientific w- worldview, and which causes a lot of philosophers and a lot of um, morose, misanthropic, and uh, pessimistic worldviews uh, saying that Chuck away the scientific worldview because it doesn't work. Look, it gave rise to all these isms, all these ideas, these great narratives that uh, led to terrible horrors. And this also is attributable to science. So please, let's go back to the old religion. There were no problems then which, of course, is not true. We don't have to uh, mention all the great wars. So, of course, they say, oh, but you compare the great wars of religion to the terrible wars of, the, of, the, of modernity, of non-religion. Of course, it is without compare. Of course, modernity is much more uh, volatile because it is something that makes experiments with the real with what is actually happening, and it can give rise to bad things and to good things. And I believe that what we are now, our society now, it's, with its emphasis on uh, gender equality, on human rights, on non-racism, this is uh, lessons learned in the crucible of history because of our scientific perspective, because our worldview is open to refutation, So we have conjectures. And sometimes these conjectures are dogma. As Popper has shown, uh, most of the great ideas of the 20th century that led to the the horrors that we have seen are actually not scientific ideas, but dogmas, actually something that is irrefutable, like Marxism. He has a big, uh, oh, he has a bone to pick with Marxism. And he shows that it is closed loop. It's like uh, a triangle has three sides. So what if it had four sides? It will not be a triangle. So mathematics is not scientific because there's no reality. It's our definition of the thing is what we find the thing to be. There is no external reality that can change our theory. In the same way, we have Marxism. But Marxism has been refuted, not logically, but realistically, because we have seen the horrors that it bred. We have seen the collapse of Russia. We have seen the the collapse of of the Chinese communism, but we have seen them after great experimentation. And we will look in in future um, conversations into the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the Gang of Four, Stalin, Hitler. We will look at the great atrocities that arose from modernity, and we will see how they veered away from the vision of science, and in fact created a new dogma, a new religious dogma, that was not scientifically inclined not scientifically oriented and the scientific orientation, which is at the root of the modernist humanist view of the ability of human beings to change their reality is still with us, still valid and still living. And in these uh, series of talks, I will uh, show you that it can become the very basis of renewed faith, of belief in the real. And, uh, okay, so now I will uh, indeed turn to um, discussion of a theology of the real in this uh, first uh, introductory uh, talk today. So now we will look at the theology that may be, how shall I say it, Um, embedded in this uh, new vision of the real, the turning to the real, in fact, a theology of the real, um, uh, the theology uh, is um, in fact based on some insights uh, provided by uh, Rabbi Cook, Rabbi uh, uh, Isaac Abraham Cook, uh, who was one uh, of the great rabbis at the turn of the previous century and uh, he um, uh, thought up or or, um, uh, developed a very sophisticated vision of uh, the, um, uh, how shall I say, the interaction, the dialogue between reality and the world, the the reality, the world, and God, his vision of God, and in fact um, create the theology of evolutionary progress that in fact speaks of both to both uh, antipodes of um, any human understanding, which is reality on the one hand, and the theory that interprets that reality on the other hand. So he in fact took uh, what we can say or call ancient dogma, or even um, mystic dogma, uh, the doctrine of Kabbalah. Uh, which he was very well versed in. In fact, it turns out there are many brands of Kabbalah, uh, many developments within Kabbalah, and he, in fact, uh, developed uh, another level, another layer within the understanding of Kabbalah and created a, a theology uh, of, uh, let's describe it as um, a theology of progress and perfection. The one pod. Uh, of this equation, the uh, the high theoretical point as it were, is perfection, which is actually, theologically speaking, the perfection of d- divinity, as defined by logic, that God is the all-encompassing perfection, uh, infinite perfection, and so on, and uh, uh, there is nothing more perfect than God. This is just like um, that. It's like theology 101. Uh, the perfection of the divine. Uh, of course, theology 101, monotheism. But we will see that this is not monotheism, not at all. It's just uh, this aspect of um, the idea of God as the infinite, as uh, the all-embracing, all-powerful, all-perfect, and so on, is one antipode. But then Rabbi Cook asked something um. Ask the question: What kind of perfection is it that is not perfectible? Is there not perfection in becoming more perfect, in uh, learning a new skill? Uh, say you're playing the violin, and you you begin, and at first it's just a lot of a bunch of of cat-like screeches, and slowly, slowly, as you gain more skill, more knowledge, uh, your talent, uh, you begin. Uh, using the violin as an extension of your mind. And, and a, a virtuoso violinist is something uh, wonderful to behold. It's something that always brings tears to my eyes when I see such virtuosity. Uh, like, uh, I don't know, Hilary Hahn or or other, uh, so many, I, I really shouldn't. Uh... <laughs> but it's so wonderful to see a virtuoso um, doing uh what he does best. And not only in in uh, violin is just one aspect, but uh, sports, sciences, uh, arts, uh, anything, any human endeavor, even a, a good plumber is something awesome to see, you know, someone who knows what he's doing, you know, like uh, there's uh, this old joke that uh, someone had a problem with his plumbing and uh, uh, he says, okay, I want the, the greatest uh, expert, so the best plumber to solve it. So the plumber comes, uh, and he's real, a real expert. He takes a look at the piping, and then he takes out a, a hammer, and he goes to a certain spot, and he taps it, and he bills it for $500. So the guy says, oh, for one tap, you, you bill me for $500? So the plumber tells him, Yeah, but you have to know where to tap. And what that entails is that for for like 30 years, this plumber has been perfecting his art so that ultimately he can just do one tap and that's it. He fixes the problem. Well, if you take someone uh, who is less uh, accomplished, uh, well, he can take your whole uh, installation apart, your whole house apart, just to fix a problem that one tap would have sufficed. So it's... This idea of virtuosity encompasses all matters human. In fact, it goes down uh, even to, our, uh, to development. When you see a baby, it's all potential. There's nothing, nothing yet has uh, gained uh, its fullness, not yet language, not yet skills. And as the baby develops, as we grow up, as we become, as our, our persons accrue more and more knowledge and skills and, 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 and things that we uh, learn about the world, we become more perfect. We, we grow, we increase, we expand, we advance. So progress is something that is part of perfection. There is a perfection in progress. So what will we do with the money-bound idea of perfect divinity that is completely static and just sits there, as it were, the perfect perfection? So uh, Rabbi Cook uh, states, okay, so look, well, if we look at the world, We will see that the divine actually incorporates an aspect that is progressing, that is becoming more perfect. And that is the very world. The real is the developing uh, aspect of divinity. Now, this is, (laughs) okay, uh, I'm going to go a bit, uh, I'm going to go a bit into the workings of this idea. Uh, which I believe is truly revolutionary and we will discuss its implications over many conversations, uh, hopefully, the divine willing. Um, But um, in fact, it is a kind of like pantheism or panentheism, but it is not. It's like the world is the same or is united with God but it is not the same. And we will see that the nuances here are all important because um, the the Rabbi Cook based this uh, vision on Kabbalah. And Kabbalah is essentially an emanationist uh, theology. Um, There have been emanationists throughout history, uh, especially mystics, who continue to see all the time the um, contact between the world and God, and to seek uh, this unity with God. But we will see that uh, contra previous kinds of emanationist uh, theology, uh, theologies, this particular theology, uh, this uh, theology of progress and perfection, uh, in fact, um, can be applied very uh beautifully to the uh, great innovation of the last 100 years, the turn to the real. And the fact that we as individuals are capable of um, organizing and um, perfecting our own reality, which is all the workings of science, in fact. So, in fact, you see, already there's a glimmering of this, the, the, an intimation of this, that Rabbi Cook's uh, theology, or what w- actually we, what we derive, because there are other aspects of his theology um, that we will not um, ado- adopt. But in this regard, this central core idea of his was, I believe, groundbreaking and, and world-shaking, because Actually, it points to science, to modernity, to the optimism of modernity. And we will have a lot to say about the pessimism of post-modernity and its its place in the the order of things. And it will not be a critique. Well, it will be a critique, but okay. Uh, Let's not um, digress too much. Um, Modernity itself, this turn to the real, uh, following Galileo, becomes part of this theological worldview because the divine has, according to Kabbalah, and this is what the the whole idea here is based on, the divine in its infinity uh, created a space for progress, for perfectibility. So uh, in Kabbalah, there are ideas that they talk about um, uh, God uh, creating a void within himself, and in that void, there was room for the world uh, to develop without uh, divinity, with free will. Because the main problem with all uh, dogmas, with all, not with all dogmas, dogmas are right here, with with all the ideas of monotheism uh, is the coerciveness uh, of a, a divine ordainment or divine um, um, predestination that forces the hand. If if God forced you, where is your choice? How can you be more perfect if everything is dictated? There has to be a lot of freedom. There has to be uh, a room for growth, room for development. And uh, so uh, on this idea of a world that has emanated from the divine. Uh, and Kabbalah describes it as a kind of uh, like it's going down from the uh, height of the divine. It's going down, down, down until it manifests in the world. So this is this is classic uh, <clears throat> Neoplatonism. But Rav Cook has a twist on this. And the twist is that uh, the world the the tendency of the world to progress all the time is an aspect of divinity that without it, there is no idea of perfect divinity because there cannot be perfection without perfectibility. So the world was created. This is like the, the essential question of any theology. Why is the world created? What is the reason? Why was man made? Why? And so on. Why are we here? So Rabbi Cook's uh, answer is, we are here because we are that aspect of God that perfects itself. So we are constantly on the move, both individually and culturally and cosmically. Now, this is the basic idea. Uh, progress and perfection, or perfectibility and perfection. Now, this uh, befits or, or uh, is uh, compatible with the idea of evolutionary progress, of evolution uh, to the highest degree. So uh, evolution, uh, biological evolution, will serve us throughout the uh, progression of these talks as a template and as a, um, um, uh, how shall I say, the crucible for um, testing our ideas about the uh, behavior of reality. Because, um, now this is a very, uh, this vision will um, take both sides. It will see how, Evolution, the description of, of biological evolution as provided by Darwin only gives us a, a limited picture of a wider uh, perp- perspective. Also, we will see how both uh, the neo-Darwinists and uh, uh, their detractors, like intelligent design versus uh, everything is random, we will see that, that both these views are contingent on a different theological perspective of God as a maker, as, a, as an architect. While this perspective that we are talking about now is a theological innovation that no longer separates us from the world from God, but actually makes the world itself and ourselves an active part of God, an active part of divinity. Uh, in fact, making it possible to restore religion, not religion, or f- let's call it faith, uh, unless you call evotrust uh, a religion. But the idea of evotrust, uh, that's the, the, the term that I coined for this uh, whole idea, is uh, that there is something in evolution that uh, reflects uh, a deeper theology of the divine. And um, if we trust in this, we can make sense of the, um, um, let's say, the progress or the motion of the scientific endeavor over the last few hundred years. So let us now apply this theology to what we know of evolution. A current evolutionary picture, and this is like beyond interpretation. Darwinism, neo Darwinism, it's an interpretation of the facts, but let's look at the facts that most scientists agree on today. Uh, it's a theory, but the theory, again, turns to re- to the real. And the real are the fossil remains, uh, which Darwin uh, based his theory on. And today, much more important than the fossil remains, are the genetic testimonies. You go into the NCBA, uh, NCBA, or it's NCBM, uh, NCBI, I think NCBI, uh, there's a huge database of the genomes of so many creatures, including the human genome. And... Once we we've began mapping the genetic structure of life on earth, it became amply evident that Darwin had it right. So although Darwin had a, a vision that was morphological, that was looking at the outside development of creatures, uh, the, the phenotype that developed and seeing how each creature is similar to another and the transitions, and from this he mapped out the whole idea of evolution, Today, we have the inside view, as it were, and we can see, uh, we can learn a lot more about the actual workings of of evolution in biology laboratories, genetic laboratories, and if you go into uh, these websites that show uh, the genomes of various um, organisms, you can see the percentage of similarity between organisms, and it's uh, truly amazing, like, everything is connected. This is like a mystic's uh, dream, like a mystical vision of unity. You can see that the entire, uh, all of life is interconnected, and each each form of life is built on uh, previous forms, and we have uh, commonalities throughout, so that even if we go as low, say, as... Um, a mustard, uh, a mustard seed. Or I think a mustard seed has some connotations in Christianity. Uh, and so mustard and uh, the mustard genome and the human genome have uh, 25% commonalities. How can that be? We are so different from the mustard, uh, the lowly mustard. Uh, and of course, I'm talking, uh, we are much more similar to other creatures. Uh, when we go to chimpanzees, uh, bonobos, we are 97% similarities. And just that 3% is what makes us human, that, that uh, completely different uh, story. But how come we have uh, commonalities with mustard, with, with fish, with, with, with so much, with everything, with all life on earth? because many gene sequences found to be identical in particular the workings of the cell intercellular uh, extracellular uh, all kinds of uh, mechanisms that are genetically coded that we have that are similar uh, to all cellular organisms and all of life is cellular, cellular organisms so in fact science gives us an amazing vision of unity that is, uh, as I said, a mystic's dream. But let us look at this this uh, development as we know it today, uh, from a descriptive point of view. Uh, from the Big Bang, even before biological evolution, we have evolution of the cosmos. Uh, we have the Big Bang. Then we have the first generation of suns. Uh, we have um, elements forming. It began all. We all began with hydrogen, with just one atom, one electron. Uh, but Uh, slowly, uh, heavier elements are formed. And we know that up to like, uh, I think, iron uh, are formed in suns. But then the heavier elements cannot be formed in the regular uh, heat of the suns. It needs to be much hotter. So in fact, all the heavier elements in the table of elements were created uh, in supernovas, in in suns going nova and exploding. And then creating a second generation and a third generation. I keep forgetting if our sun is the third or the fourth generation of suns. But the important thing is all this like 12 billion uh, years of evolution preceded the appearance of life and it's all evolution leading up to life. And life, when it appears, uh, incorporates those same elements that were formed in the previous stages and life itself, we see, is evolving very, very slowly. It begins like a million years of prokaryotes, of, of uh, uh, single-celled organisms that do not have a nucleus. And uh, like it's the simplest of bacteria. Uh, I don't know if they even call, I think they're called bacteria. Are they called bacteria? I don't know. Prokaryotes. And then there appears this innovation of a bacteria within a bacteria like the the eukaryotes that have uh, within them a core. And this was the basis for the appearance just 600 million years ago. On a cosmic scale, this is nothing. Just 600 million years ago, the first uh, appearance of multicellular creatures of which we are one, we are ones. So we see that evolution, it's very very slow, and it progresses. There is a direction. Now this direction has not been properly encompassed by Darwinian uh, by the Darwinian theory of evolution, because Darwin uh, treats evolution more like um, um, on a on a random basis, uh, in, and most of his theory is about the honing down of traits already there. What he found, for example, with his birds and so on, is that uh, I think the classic case was like, you have a storm and uh, there are birds of three three different distinct wing sizes, short, medium, and long, okay? So, short, medium, and long. (laughs) So, uh, now a big storm comes in and the birds with long wings, their wings break and they die. The, were, the birds with short wings, they are too short and the wind buffets them around and they, thro- and they, are, and they die. And only the birds with intermediate span of wings, they are n- not here, not there, but they survive. So they are the fittest to survive in the wind. And that is how evolution develops. It's like the honing of traits. So that the next population, the next generation will pass on the genes for uh, medium-span wings. the picture is much more complex actually because it turns out that uh, the genes uh, of uh, medium-sized birds also uh, have the potential of uh, getting offspring with uh, short or long. In any case, the thing with evolution that it's difficult for it to explain the progress, the idea of progress, Uh, and this idea of progress is so deeply um, embedded in what we know of evolution, and it's like it's like the data screams it out. But evolutionists say, ah, but because you can't really see, you can't really give a name to this um, uh, force that is pushing evolution uh, forward as progress. And a lot, a lot of ink has been Uh, spent on uh, conjectures and refutations of actually conjectures without refutations or dogma versus dogma uh, over the argument of intelligent design versus non-intelligent design. So we are now debunking both sides because evolution obviously has a trend. It has a direction. It's an arrow. There is evolutionary progress. I, I uh, depicted it here. Uh, it's like uh, uh, like from a turtle. Uh, I, I, I like the turtle, but you could just put a single cell organism here, or the Big Bang, or whatever, and at the top I put uh, like uh, an angel, um, uh, the, like the divinity above, uh, which of course it's only part of the progression uh, because the idea here is infinite progression. There is no end of days, uh, no uh, doomsday eschatology in this theory. It development, development. The progress is infinite because God is infinite, and this progression is the infinite progression of that part of God uh, that is capable of uh, becoming more perfect. Uh, moving towards infinite perfection. So by definition, it's infinite. And this is uh, what Rabbi Cook points to when he speaks of evolution. He says, look, it's so slow, it's so low, it's just, it begins with nothing and it becomes more and more and more. And this, actually, we know this goes against the trend of entropy. Nobody yet has explained life itself. Why it should be? Because we will see later in later talks, there's so much um, waste in life, so much energy wasted, and it goes against entropy. Entropy says that the order should be going down, but you see in life, it becomes more ordered, more complex, more gentler, more uh, intelligent, and so on. So, we see an, an evident progression. Now, uh, so, we would say, okay, intelligent design, but no, it's not intelligent design, because intelligent design um, says that there is like an architect. It's a different vision. It's a different theological vision. It says like there's an architect or a watchmaker, and the world is uh, an edifice or a watch, and uh, the architect or the watchmaker has created the world. So, we have, this is God, this is the world, and the, the maker and the maid. The creator and the crea- crea- and the creation, the creatures. Creator and the creatures. So this is the classic theological view, but Rabbi Cook gives a completely different rendition of this. He says, no, there is no static maker and made. It's one. It's a unity. It's the divine inside the world pushes the world into uh, progressing. But this progress by the very nature of the world is open ended, it's creative. There is no uh, definite watch that has to be made. But there's a growing creatures that develop new talents, new skills that develop themselves, that are free to create, and the world itself is a creative endeavor as part of the divine. So it's not like a watchmaker and a watch. And so uh, the refutation of uh, like Dawkins or Gould or so on, uh, who say, no, the world is just, it's just a machine, or it's just, it's, everything is random and so on. And of course, the world is full of random- randomality. And of course, this is another amazing thing that despite randomality, we have all this, this order appearing out of chaos, completely un- un- non-understandable. So uh, what actually uh, Dawkins and, and his ilk do, they break the watchmaker and the watch because the vision uh, does not encompass the way reality behaves, and they are right. But they are wrong in, uh, in uh, putting all of evolution on randomality because randomality cannot explain the speed of evolution. If we saw it slowly, uh, the way we talked about the slowness of evolution, Now we can talk about the speed of evolution, because according to uh, um, the ideas of neo darwinists who talk about the statistical uh, uh, chance that through mutation, all these wonderful things are going to appear, this is also impossible. We would need like 300 billion or 3000 billion or much, much like, I I don't remember the, the calculations that people have done it, it's like, 10 to the three hundred power, while the universe is only, uh, only exists like 10 to the, I think, to the 10th power? I don't know how much. I forgot the calculation. Or the 12th. Yeah, billions, right? 10 to the 12th. So it's impossible. The world is impossible. And yet we see it. So now we have, and this is the idea, that this is a theology of the real. Because now we have the empirical evidence of our, Uh, senses of our science, the description that we derive from Darwin, from his um, um, successors, from genetics, and we see that there is definite progress. So evolution does progress, but it is obviously not a a watchmaker designer type of intelligent design. There is a a deeper force here, something uh, much more sublime, uh, much uh, much more difficult to put um, to put one's finger on and say, this is it, because it's not it. Every it that you point to eventually develops, unfolds, changes, transforms. Everything is in motion. Everything is in transformation. So now, if we look at evolution through the perspective of uh, this idea of progress and perfection, of evil trust, of believing the divinity of the real and believing the real as an expression of divinity. We can now look at a modernity, at our human endeavors, at our ability to change ourselves and to seek all the time to self-improve, all the self-improvement literature, all the deliberations on the political level, on the theoretical level, all, all the workings of academia, all the research, and all the great social experimentation and so many failed experiments from which you can learn what not to do. Now, if you look at them from this perspective and you realize that you have or we have the free will and the ability to change our lot in life, to change reality because we are part of that reality and all of reality is calling to us to make it better, to make it a better place, to achieve greater progress, because we are that aspect of the divine that is stamped with progress. This is the reason the world was created, in order to progress, in order to grow, in order to become better, to become more perfect. So we now have a, a theology for the real, and we have the real as the... Um, Test of our theology, and um, this will be the focus of the following talks: uh, how the two uh, merge, how a vision of science, of philosophy, of uh, of the world as we know it from our um, uh, from the way that science and, uh, and the academic sciences and, and research and history and everything that they, all that reality teaches us, in fact, and see. How this vision of the divine, this faith, uh, it is trust in the um, uh, appearance of the divine through the evolutionary nature of the world, uh, can uh, uh, provide us with a lot of optimism in the face of the pessimism of such, uh, of both, uh, say, postmodernity and uh, the ancient religions, who now um, have uh, a lot of bad-mouthing against modernity because of its failures. So this is a, a faith in the real, a faith in the, the human ability to grow, uh, to progress, and it actually uh, imbues it with divinity. It actually um, mends the the rent, the rift between uh, the, the faith and science, between, a vision of something greater than ourselves, uh, of God, of some mystic vision of unity, and suddenly we are able to uh, blend it to find a way that it uh, can be uh, merged or um, uh, wedded with the real. So we have a theology of the real and belief in the real, and we have the real to help us snap out of it when we err. So, um, uh, like Popper says, conjectures and refutations. So we are going to look at a lot of conjectures, a lot of refutations in view of this grand conjecture, a grand paradigm uh, of progress and perfection. You are invited to join me in further episodes of Dawn's On, for insights, epiphanies and the sheer joy of understanding.